The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading today is the book of John, chapter 13, the first 17 verses. Please stand with me as I read God's word. John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as you just heard, uh, our time in the book of Judges is finished. And so we are now transitioning into a a new sermon series. Um, We're going to be in the Gospel of John. Um, Specifically, we're airdropping right into the middle of the Gospel of John. If you want to know why we're zooming in in particular on chapters 13 through 17. I'm going to post on Slack that will help unpack some of the ideas of why we're, why we're doing this. Um, but we're, we're starting this morning on the front end of this section. This is really sort of like the, the main middle section of the Gospel of John, something that's often called the Upper Room Discourse. What we're going to read over the next couple of months is a conversation, really one of the, uh, the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples before he is crucified, dead, buried, and then resurrected. Um, John's gospel is the only gospel that gives us this conversation. 
I think I mentioned in that Slack post, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all they record about this time is that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Um, he talks about Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, but that's it. And so if you've ever wondered, like, did Jesus say anything of importance during this time when he's instituting this giantly important thing called the Lord's Supper? And the answer is, yes, he did. And the answer is right here in front of us, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. This is the recorded conversation from John the disciple about what Jesus had to say during this time from his teacher, his Lord, the Lord Jesus. And so we're calling this series title, Teacher and Lord. And as we zoom then into the very beginning of our uh, text that will consume us for this entire sermon series, John chapter 13, we're going to concentrate on verses 1 through 17. And as we do this, notice that John the disciple is going to focus on this main idea, namely that Jesus is going to model for us the necessity of salvation and the importance of servanthood. Pick up on those two key words, salvation and servanthood. That's the title of the sermon this morning because that's what Jesus is going to run after as he stoops low in order to wash the disciples' feet. He's going to model something for us. Our need to be saved, salvation, and the importance of servanthood. What does salvation mean for you and I? What are the implications of Jesus saving sinners? So let's pray for our time in the word this morning. Then we'll turn to our text and work through these 17 verses. Father, come and move in power and might. What we need this morning is to be wowed by the gospel of your cross. We need to be revived by the good news of your grace. We need you to expose our sinfulness, and our need for a Savior. We need you to magnify our utter and absolute dependence on Jesus. Father, I am incapable of doing anything to make those four requests come to pass. I don't have that kind of power. I don't have that kind of ability. But you, Holy Spirit, do. And so I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would now fill, drench, immerse this time in the Word so that the result would be men and women seeing their need for a Savior, truly being exposed to the sin that is in our hearts, Leaving here, agreeing that I am utterly dependent on Jesus, having had our hearts revived by the good news of the cross, having our hearts wowed by the gospel of grace. God, help us now. It's in your 
perfect, magnificent name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you read stories or if you're a fan of movies or whatever, then my guess is you along with me love it when something has a point to it. And I love it when something does truly have a point. Or to be more specific, when I'm reading a story, when I'm watching a movie, when I'm working through a book, I love it when the author in some way, shape, or form has crafted his story with a clearly articulated point that drives the entirety of the plot. So no matter how many details you get, no matter how many characters or scenarios or episodes the author rolls out before you, what you know is that all of that information coming at you is being funneled through that clearly articulated point. You see, if a story just meanders aimlessly around, I tend to not be that gung-ho about it. But if you give me a simple summary idea that encapsulates the driving thrust of a narrative, then I'm a happy camper. And as we shift into the Gospel of John, and as we shift more specifically into John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, what we find before us is another man named John who also likes stories with a clearly articulated point. You see, in the first three books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, we have what are often called the synoptic gospels. That's a phrase used to define the first three books of the Bible, where the word gospel means good news, and the word synoptic, it's a fancy word, but it's really a word that just simply means something is similar. So when we talk about the synoptic gospels, what we're doing is we're talking about three similarly written stories that focus on the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you've noticed this before, right? The way that the authors move from the birth to the death of Christ, a lot of the movements flow in the same way. They're concentrating on the life of Christ. They're just coming at it from three different perspectives, three different men who've had three different interactions with Jesus. But when it comes to the Gospel of John, the reason why we don't say John is one of those synoptic Gospels, those similar stories that talk about the good news life of Christ, is because John tells the good news story of Jesus in a different way. Compared to the synoptic Gospels, John the disciple often gives us new information, new uh, conversation, uh, new stories that some of those synoptics didn't put into their their stories about Jesus. But what we need to know is that when it comes to the Gospel of John, this book about the life of Jesus written by John the disciple, John is not being different for the sake of just merely being different. Instead, it's difference with a point. And you might be asking, well, what is the summary, clearly articulated point of John's Gospel? Well, if you turn to your Bibles to the end of his gospel, you will eventually find John chapter 20. And then if you look up verses 30 and 31, it's there that John gives us the clear purpose of his book. My Bible has a little bold heading above those two verses, and it says, the purpose of this book. And so it's like, thank you, I'm dense sometimes, I need that kind of help. And so there it is at the very end. Now, John saves it for the end, 
But when you work through 20 chapters of the life of Christ, he finally comes down and he says this to us. Listen, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So the first clue is this. When you read what John wrote in his gospel, what he's saying is this isn't everything that could possibly be told about Jesus. Because he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, he says. But these things that you have in this book in front of you are written so that, one, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and two, that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's clearly articulated point for his entire gospel is this. Every story, every conversation, every movement, every action, everything that I put in front of you, I put it in the order that I did, I used the that I said, I wanted you to know these certain things about Christ because by the time you work through the entirety of John's gospel, you should come to the very end, be able to close the Bible and say this, I know that Jesus is the Christ, I know that Jesus is the Son of God, and I have called, I've been called to believe in him so that by believing in him, I might have eternal life in him alone. And if you were able to walk away from reading John's gospel and say that, John would say, my purpose for this book has been served in your life. So, with that simple, clearly articulated purpose to the book, casting its shadow from John chapter 20 all the way over to John chapter 1, when we zoom in to John 13 through 17, what this tells you and what this should tell me is that these chapters, these verses, these sentences, these words did not make it into this book by mistake. You should be able, we should be able over the next couple of months to read this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples hours before he is crucified bearing the wrath of God and walk away going, Having read this, I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. And I know that the response that is laid on me is to believe in him so that I might have life in his name. So more, way more, than mere random words on a page that serve little to no benefit before us, What we have, starting off in John 13, are purposeful words designed by the author that are meant to plunge us deeper into the shadow of the cross. And that's what we see in the first three verses in John chapter 13. This is point number one, deeper into the shadow of the cross. You see, it's important to know that these first three verses in John chapter 13, they function as an introduction to a major new section in John's gospel. At this stage in the life of Jesus, Jesus is just a few short hours away from bearing the sin of the world on the cross. It's going to be very important that you remember this because it's going to take us three months to work through what took Jesus a couple of hours. And when we're into November and December, what you might lose sight of is 
how long has this thing been going on? Well, it hasn't been going on very long. 13 through 17 in John's gospel is a very short amount of time where it's like Jesus' swan song. He's about to die. And when someone's about to die, you want to pay attention to what they're saying because they're hopefully pouring out things of extreme importance that matter to them. So far in John's gospel, he's been using words like life and light, and they're firing all over the place. And this concept of love is mentioned very little. When you come into John 13 through 17, the words for life and light as Jesus relates them to himself, they decrease rapidly, but what increases is the word love. Love is firing off all over the place because Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, I've loved you, I've loved my own, and I'm loving you all the way to the end. And so impassioned with love for his disciples, Jesus is speaking things of extreme importance over a couple hours right before he goes and bears the sin of the world on the cross. We know that this is the case because of the idea behind John the disciple in verse 1 telling us that it was before the feast of the Passover. That's a little chronological marker there. But it's also more than a chronological marker. It's sort of like a theological marker. Because if you go back to the beginning of this book, what you will find is a man named John the Baptist who bursts on the scene... And he starts proclaiming, crying out, screaming to all those who will hear as he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, says John the disciple, the time has come for this Lamb, this Passover Lamb, to be slain so that by his blood many might find the forgiveness of sin. You see, Jesus loved his own. And he loved them to the end. And the unquestionable proof of his love is that for the joy set before him, the author says of Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus marched deeper into the shadow of the cross knowing what was coming his way. And we know that Jesus knows what's coming his way because three different times in three verses, John says, here's what Jesus knew, here's what Jesus knew, here's what Jesus knew as he's marching towards the cross. Look at verse 1. You see, the first thing Jesus knew, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Second thing Jesus knew, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. The third thing, Verse 3 again, Jesus also knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. So not only did Jesus know that his work on the cross was about to be accomplished, he knew his hour had come to depart. He also knew that as events began to unfold, they were all under his authoritative control. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, including the crucifixion that was about to take place. So the picture that John is painting for us is that as Jesus is standing in the deep shadows of the cross, he's not just a man who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Here is the authoritative high king of heaven saying, because I've loved my own and I'm loving to them to the end, my love is driving me to the cross so that I will die 
as the necessary Passover lamb, as the necessary sacrifice so that my blood shed applied to the account of any sinner who comes to me looking to be cleansed of their sin can find the salvation they need. So even though, verse 2, the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, there wasn't the slightest hint at the possibility of defeat. Why? Because this Jesus knew. I am going back to my father. So when he's saying, I know where I'm going to be, it doesn't matter what's coming. Nothing's going to derail me from arriving at my destination of getting back to the father. So with this introduction complete, John, the disciple, brings us to the place where Jesus is now going to act out what he knows to be true. He knows this, he knows this, he knows this. He wants his disciples to know what he knows. But Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. And so what he's going to do, he's going to act out a parable of sorts of what the cross means in the life for a believer. Jesus is going to symbolically act out his saving work on the cross by washing the disciples' feet, showing our second point that we need Jesus to wash us clean. This is what's going on with this idea of salvation. We need Jesus to wash us clean, verses 4 through 11. Now think about this. When you talk to people about Jesus, or maybe you've grown up in church for a while, one of the probably, I would argue, more um, notable instances of Jesus doing something uh, very uh, distinguishing, very distinct, is this episode right here of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Now, my argument is that there's a reason why John 13 in this foot washing episode captures our attention so well. It's because outside of Jesus' death and bodily resurrection, one of the most dramatic moments in the life of Jesus is when he, the high king of heaven, stoops low and performs the actions of a servant. You see, in Jesus' day, the act of foot washing was a common experience, and rightly so. If some of you are like me, I'm reading about foot washing, and I'm just like, ooh, like I'm getting a little grossed out. It's like, man, ain't nobody going to be washing my feet, man. I'm, I'm Peter all day long. Like, my, my feet are gross. They stink. They smell. Ain't no one going to be putting, putting soap and water on, on my feet, right? And we don't really think in those terms because for the most part, like, right, people are taking care of themselves, cleaning themselves. They don't, they don't need to have their feet feet washed. But in Jesus' day, foot washing was a common experience, and it was a common experience for a good and right reason. Just think about it. With sandal-covered feet traipsing through the ancient Near East, Palestine, what are you sure to pick up? You're sure to pick up dust, dirt, animals everywhere, manure, mud. I mean, it was just a nasty business walking around at that time. You mix all that nasty with the heat of the Palestinian climate, and I'm telling you, you can only imagine how disgusting people's feet were at that time. So someone says, hey, man, like when Bob and Karen are coming over for dinner, I mean, we love them, but their feet stink, and we need them to get cleaned up. And so we're going to take care of this. And so foot washing becomes a common experience. But notice this, that the job of foot washing wasn't done by just anybody. 
It wasn't done by just anybody. The job was considered to be so menial that the Jews of the day wouldn't even allow their Jewish servants to wash the feet of other people. They actually went and would get Gentiles to do the job instead because the job was so menial, so low, so disgusting, so repulsive that anybody of class or stature would avoid it like the plague. So let's just get someone who doesn't really matter in our eyes to do this menial job. And so when we come at foot washing, at least armed with this understanding, when we land in the upper room where Jesus is about to unpack some very crucial teaching concerning who he is, his mission, what it means to abide in him, how he loves the disciples, the purpose and the work of the Holy Spirit, he first stops long enough to wash some feet. And so when you land in the upper room in these first couple of verses, what we read and what we encounter rightly smacks us in the face. Instead of the lowly servant taking up the task, in steps the stooping Jesus, the high king of heaven who's going to take on this low and menial task. And you know that there was this sense of shock and horror among the disciples because of the way John slows the event down into almost near slow motion in verses 5. Just look at how he's meticulous in the detail of describing what Jesus did. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a bowl, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And then he began to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's almost as if John the disciple has this mind-boggling image of the humility of the Lord of glory doing the job of a lowly servant, it's so seared into his mind, he cannot not see the intricate details of this act of sacrificial, self-giving humility being played out right in front of him. But notice that Peter is going to act like Peter, and as Jesus begins to do this, he says, not going to have any part of this. So Jesus comes to wash his feet, and Peter says to him in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? Translation, this ain't going to happen. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Unfazed by this, Peter doubles down on his position And he forcefully restates, no, Jesus, I don't think you understand. You shall never wash my feet. To which Jesus replies, brother, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Now, this is an equally forceful reply to Jesus, to Peter's forceful confession, you ain't going to do this to me, Jesus. But verse 8, and the reply of Jesus in verse 8, I want you to see this. This reply is the clue from Jesus that there's more going on to foot washing than stinky feet that need to be cleaned. Because Peter's over here saying, Lord, wash my feet. You're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, listen, if I don't wash you, he skips the feet and he's starting to go right into the understanding of this acted out parable that he's laying before the disciples. So when Jesus says, if I do not wash you, that's your clue as a reader of the scriptures. You know what? I think there might be something more going on here than just stinky feet and smelly toes. Because again, Jesus is doing what he so often does. He's taking a common everyday activity and he's using it to teach a theological point. A point which Peter is about to miss because Peter can't see beyond bowls of water and dirty towels. So what point is Jesus trying to make with the foot washing? It's this. The foot washing is an acted parable that explains the cross. The foot washing is an acted parable that explains the cross. Just like dirty feet need to be washed because they're foul, repulsive, stinky, and stained, so dirty hearts need to be washed because they too are foul, repulsive, stinky, and stained with sin. In washing the disciples' feet, what Jesus is picturing is not the dirt found on the soles of a foot. What Jesus is picturing is the dirt found on the soles in us. Sinners must be washed clean from the dirt of sin. That's what Jesus is saying to these disciples. And unless Jesus washes away our sin, we can have nothing to do with him. That's what he's saying in verse 8. If I do not wash you. Translation, if I do not wash away the dirt of sin that stains you and separates you from me, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. If you're here this morning and you're picking up on this parabolic language that Jesus is using and you're starting to recognize now because the Holy Spirit is pressing on you that my sins have not been washed away, my heart is still stained with the dirt of sin, then you look at verse 8 and what we can say is this. No matter what you might claim, Jesus is saying you have no part with me you and I are not in a relationship those who have a relationship with Jesus are those who've said I am looking to Christ and Christ alone and he alone has the power to make this foul repulsive stinky sin-stained heart to be clean pure and washed So the question then becomes, okay, so if Jesus is talking about this this metaphorical idea of the dirt of sin, then we need to ask ourselves a question. What does the dirt of sin look like? What does the dirt of sin look like? Or, put it this way, 
what is this spiritual dirt that must be washed away if, verse 8, I am to have a share with Jesus, have a part with Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus? Well, man, there's a hundred different places we could go in the Bible to answer these questions, but at least one of them is at the end of Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. In describing those who suppress the truth of God and, in essence, wallow in the dirt of sin, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 writes this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It's the dirt of sin. Evil, dirt of sin. Covetousness, malice, more dirt of sin. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, more dirt of sin. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That one always gets me there. Do you ever notice that? I mean, the list up until then is some pretty sort of nasty stuff. And all of a sudden he's like, eh disobedience to parents like he just throws it in you're just sort of like what's that about what that about is this children and for those of us who still have parents disobeying your parents is not a minor thing it's as equally offensive and dirty before the eyes of god as being a gossiping slandering god hater when mom and dad say do this and you go no i think i'll just do whatever i want to do mom and dad Foolishness, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the dirt of sin. And the Apostle Paul says those who practice such things deserve to die a spiritual death. Romans chapter 1 verse 32. This is what the dirt of sin justly deserves. Death. But in washing the disciples' feet... Jesus is portraying something truly good. He is saying that he is the one who has the power to wash away this dirt of sin. Just as he actually washed away the dirt from the disciples' feet, so his work on the cross will actually wash away the defilement of sin that separates men and women from God. In other words, the foot washing tells us that the cross is sufficient for salvation. Jesus lowered himself in humility, a sacrificial, self-giving action. He took off his robe, put on his towel, stooped down before the disciples' feet, and he actually accomplished a task. He washed that stinky, nasty dirt off their feet. And what he's saying is, here in a couple of hours, when I go to that cross in sacrificial, self-giving humility, as the servant that I am, just as I actually accomplished the wash washing of dirt off of your feet, I'm about to actually accomplish the power and the ability to wash the dirt of sin off of your hearts. The cross, he is saying, is sufficient for salvation. Well, Peter, once he begins to understand this, he's like, what? Uh, he was over here, right? He's like, no, you ain't never going to do this. And all of a sudden he's like, do everything then, right? Do you see that over there in verse 9? 
Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. He's like, okay, if this is what it's about, let's do this. And so Jesus says to him, listen, 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 listen. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not one of you. The but not one of you in verse 11 says he's talking about um, the one he knew would betray him, and we're going to learn in a little bit that's Judas. But Jesus is now using this foot washing terminology, and he's, he's just tweaking the point just a little bit right now. So his first point was, listen, when the foot washing parable is played out before you, I'm teaching you this one thing, that the cross is sufficient for salvation. But now in light of Peter's enthusiastic, characteristic reaction, Jesus is going to make a second point about the sufficiency of the cross for believers. You see, not only is the cross sufficient for salvation, that's what he just showed us, but he's also showing us that the cross is also sufficient for sanctification. The ongoing pursuit of those who have been washed clean at conversion. You see, when we talk about the cross being sufficient for sanctification, what we're saying is that the cross is sufficient not only as the source of our salvation, but it's sufficient as the ongoing source that continues to mold us into the image of our Savior. In the words of one commentary, once believers have come to Jesus for washing, they don't need to keep on going back to the beginning and starting all over again each time they sin. Once clean, Jesus' own people remain clean. But at the same time, they need to remain dependent on Jesus' cross for the washing of dirt that is picked up after the first bath. So if you want to take the whole foot washing thing and summarize it down to this, what Jesus wants his disciples to see in the upper room, and subsequently what Jesus wants you to see this morning, and what Jesus wants me to see this morning is this, the cross is sufficient. The cross is sufficient. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is not only sufficient for your salvation, but it is sufficient for your ongoing growth and conformity to the image of the Savior who died for you. The cross is sufficient. So, this is the confidence you and I can have in the sufficiency of the cross. But notice that Jesus doesn't just stop there. Notice that confidence in the sufficiency of the cross must not lead to complacency for, third point, we are called to serve as we've been served by Jesus. We are called to serve as we've been served by Jesus. This is what we find in verses 12 through 17. Jesus isn't simply acting out this parable so that we can have a fat head full of knowledge about salvation and sanctification and the sufficiency of the cross and go, oh, wow, gee, thanks, I learned a little something extra for today. He's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to know this because you need it. Your hearts are dirty, stained with sin. You need the sufficiency of the cross for salvation. You need to know about the sufficiency of the cross for sanctification, your ongoing pursuit of Christ. But now what you need to know is this, that when we understand and grasp the concept of our salvation, we need to march forward in the implication of our salvation and it's found in servanthood. We are called to serve as we've been served by Jesus. So notice how Jesus connects salvation to servanthood. 
Once a person has had their sin washed away by Jesus, what we can say is that person has been served by Jesus. Just as foot washing was servant's work, so heart washing was the same. And that's the point Jesus is saying. In Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You jump into Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, here it is, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, here it is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if there was ever an illustration of what true servanthood looks like, it would be found in the Christ who died upon the cross. If you're like, I don't know what it means to serve someone else, all you got to do is this. Boop. Look to the cross. Because when you understand the cross, when you understand the Christ who died upon the cross, what you have is a living illustration of what it looks like to humbly, sacrificially self-give for the benefit of others. So to drive the point home, Jesus, in verse 12, says, uh, do you guys understand what I've done for you? I love that question. Because so often the disciples are like, I hope Peter speaks up, because he always does, you know, because uh, we don't look. Like, do you understand what I've done for you, he says. And part of the theme of the Gospels is the disciples don't really get it until after the resurrection. So there's this sense in which they're like, I don't know, were you just washing our feet because they smelled? He's like, no, 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 listen, in washing their feet, Jesus had acted toward them with sacrificial, self-giving humility. In the same sacrificial, self-giving humility that led Jesus to wash their feet was going to be the same sacrificial, self-giving humility that would lead him to die on the cross for the washing away of their sin. And if Jesus has served you and me in this way, then he says we are to serve others as we've been served by him. We are to serve others as we've been served by him. This is the connection between salvation and servanthood. That's the connection. Have you been served by Jesus? Is your soul saved? Has the dirt of your sin been washed away clean? Yes! Then Jesus said, I've acted towards you with humble, sacrificial, self-giving love. Now, what you've received, go and do likewise. Go and love others with a humble, sacrificial, self-giving attitude as well. As Jesus says in verse 14... If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Again, is Jesus just saying, be really particular about foot hygiene? No. What he's saying is this. Listen, if I've acted towards you and saved you with this sacrificial self-giving humility, you need to go out and do the same towards others. 
No servant is greater than his master. And if Master Jesus has given us this example of servanthood, what follower of Jesus has the right to ever refuse serving someone else? What right do we have? The high king of heaven humbled himself to the low stooping position of a servant and served us for our benefit. So what right do we have to receive that benefit than to go, I refuse to do it to anybody else. Thank you, Jesus, for serving me, but I ain't going to operate with a heart of servanthood toward anyone else. If our master will humbly serve others, we are not exempt from serving like him. So if you are here this morning and you can say, Jesus has saved me by washing away my sin. If you're here this morning and you can say this, then the question becomes, how and who am I serving? How and who am I serving? Maybe you can ask yourself this question. When I gather on Sunday mornings, part of a local body of believers. How and who am I serving? Maybe when we scatter out into a community group during the week and you show up at that person's house and you have other brothers and sisters who join as well, maybe the question you haven't asked yourself in a while is this. How can I serve at community group tonight? Who can I serve? community group tonight see some of us fall into the category of thinking community group exists to serve us and we come with that attitude expecting everyone to bow down and give but it's that mutual give and take of them coming saying who and how can I serve and then you showing up saying who and how can I serve and in that picture as we'll see at the end of John 13 that love of Christ which pervades us will be on display and that will become a bullhorn for the love of Christ that sinners need to know about and it becomes an encouraging reminder for the love of Christ among the body of believers. When you scatter out into your work with coworkers, into your neighbors, with your spouse, with your family, with your roommates, or whoever it might be, ask yourself, how am I serving? Who am I serving? You see, a trait, listen, this is so important, a trait of those who've had their sin washed clean by Jesus is their regular, joyful willingness to be inconvenienced for someone else's benefit. So if you're asking yourself, I don't know, have I truly had the dirt of my sin washed away? And if you just look at the panorama of your life and there is absolutely zero regular, joyful willingness to lay down yourself in a humble, sacrificial, self-giving attitude towards others... So that they might benefit from you serving them. If you can look back and say, man, like, I just don't see that. Then it could possibly be that you haven't really had the dirt of sin washed away from your sin-stained heart. But notice that Jesus, in connecting salvation to servanthood, isn't talking about servanthood for the sake of servanthood. It's servanthood motivated by salvation. 
servanthood motivated by salvation. It's the happy place where what you know overflows into what you do, as Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he isn't saying you're blessed if you just know a bunch of stuff. He's saying you're blessed, you have a happiness of heart that invades your soul when what you know informs your hands and your feet and you begin to live out the very things that you know, empowered by the salvation, empowered by Christ's example, empowered by the cross. That's how salvation is connected to servanthood. This is the proof that someone has understood the gospel, centered on the cross. They've not only seen their need for salvation in Jesus alone, but centered on the cross, their servanthood also finds its source of continued, ongoing strength. So here's the question. When it comes to salvation and servanthood, where are you at this morning? When it comes to salvation and servanthood, where are you at this morning? Either your sin has been washed away by Jesus or it has not. If it hasn't been, then the invitation for you is to come to Jesus and know the cleansing power of Jesus. But if it has, your sin has been washed away by Jesus, then your challenge during this time of response is to gauge whether or not you are serving others as you have been served by Jesus. Not out of an overflow of guilt, but out of an overflow of the grace that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, no matter where you're at on the spectrum this morning, you need to know this, that in Jesus Christ, listen, in Jesus Christ, you will find grace upon grace, John says in the first chapter of his book, talking about Jesus So if the Holy Spirit this morning has answered our prayer and exposed an area of your heart where you need Jesus, exposed an area of your heart where sin is blooming and flourishing and it needs to be killed, don't run from Jesus who's exposed this in your soul. Pursue Jesus. Pursue him this morning, the one who has shed his blood for the salvation of your soul. Because what you'll find on the end of that pursuit is the Christ who exposed that sin so that you could come and wade deeper into the cross and drink deeply of the grace upon grace that flows forward from him. Let's pray.